you open up to Second Peter, the third chapter. We'll get there for too long. You know, sometimes you uh, don't know how to introduce a topic. You've heard me say that before. And sometimes it's because you, you, you know what to say, but you don't know how to say it. We have, I'm sure we've all had those moments, right? Where you've got things that are clear, but it's just hard to really put it into words exactly what you've you got going. And then other times it's very clear what you want to say, and then something will come up and you say, well, I'm not sure I want to say that <laughs> anymore. And so I'm kind of walking that fine line tonight, uh, to which I don't even know why, except for just I was told to be quiet about something that I know literally nothing about. But it so coincides with what I was planning to teach about tonight. So it makes it interesting that you can be thankful that it is not something that is happening here, but it is something that is happening. And the truth is, as you look in the book of Second Peter, Peter is an old man. And Peter is getting close to his time of death, and he is writing to people that he loves. He's writing to them, and you can see that he calls them over and over, beloved. And you might say that's an overused term, that's a fake term, I don't believe it. I believe that what it truly is, is when you've worked with people in the gospel for years, you really grow to love them. Uh, they've become a very much a part of you. As Paul would say at Philemon, he's become, or Onesimus, he has become my very heart. And he writes to these people as he's older in his age, and Peter has seen the, the transformation of the church, the beginning of it. He's seen how it began there on the day of Pentecost. He has seen how it is spread in Jerusalem and Judea and through Samaria and now writing to Christians who are in the uttermost parts of the world. And he has experienced that, having been maybe writing to people in Rome, you would see in the book of First Peter. And what you have is a man who is worried about what is going to happen after he dies. But not a man that is worried. A man that knows what is going to happen after he dies. Because it is just inevitable... That these types of things will happen. And so he closes out with his final words, as Bill just read for us, telling us that there will be people, in verse 16, who will twist. They will pervert the gospel. And here's where I get to us, is that he doesn't say, don't do anything about it. He throws the honest on us. As you see there in verse 17, he says, you, therefore, you people that I am writing to, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, beware is the word, be on guard. You watch out that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I think too often, we as individuals always want to blame somebody else. It's easy, especially in this day and time, we can point the finger at somebody, and there's really no way of going back and checking it. 
uh, or no one's going to go back and check it. You just come up with some excuse, and everyone buys right into that. The truth is, is that when it comes spiritually speaking, when it comes to being led away by various doctrines, the responsibility falls on me. And by me, I don't mean the preacher, Wes. I mean the Christian, Wes. Because the truth is, we can be easily deceived as people. We buy into folks all the time. And it might be somebody who is charismatic. It might be somebody that just looks like us. It might be somebody that's from the same area as us. It might just be somebody who's similar. Or it might just be somebody that we see and we're like, man, you know, I really like what they're saying. It sounds good. And the next thing you know, we find out that we've been hoodwinked. And what we see in the book of Second Peter is that Peter is telling them, before all of this happens... I want you to know about it. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. If it's on us, it would help us to be prepared for something like this. You know, I made this statement a couple weeks ago, last time I preached, uh, from the book of Jude, that false teachers had crept in. And people, uh, in fact, I got one text message from someone asking me, was I saying that we had false teachers here in this place? Well, that's not what I was saying. That doesn't mean that there's not. I'm just saying that's not what I was saying. And Peter warns of this. I want you to go back to chapter 2 of the book of Second Peter. Tonight we're pretty much just going to go through chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Second Peter. But what you have, a difference between Jude and Second Peter chapter 2, they both talk about false teachers. And when we talk about false teachers, we're not just talking about people that are saying the wrong things that are not true. Oftentimes what we're actually meaning is not someone who doesn't fully understand. Take a Apollos, for instance. Apollos, a man competent in the Scriptures, but only knowing the baptism of John the Baptist. He was not a false teacher. He was someone who didn't fully understand yet. And so when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, remember what they did, right? They pulled him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay? That's not the idea of a false teacher. The idea of a false teacher is someone who is putting on a false front. There may be some sincerity in their beliefs, but we're going to see in chapter 2 that oftentimes it does not start from sincerity at all. It usually starts from some kind of feeling. And that's the point. If you look in verse 1 here of 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. That's an uncomfortable statement. That I imagine writing to a group of people that you love and said, there are going to be people that are in you right now that are going to go off. And they're going to try to lead you with them. That that is not a message that would be easily received. But you think about how common that is. Jesus had 12 disciples, right? You have one that was putting on front. You have one that gave him over. There's just falsity. They're not what you think they are. He was a thief. 
He didn't want to put money in the, in the basket so that they could give it to the poor. He wanted to put money in the basket so he could keep it for himself. That's people. And that's been going on from the beginning of time and religion is people were claiming to be speaking on behalf of God and they were not. And he says, there are going to be those that come among you. Peter's not the only one that says that. Paul says that in Acts chapter 20. That among you elders, there will be some who creep in among the flock and they are devouring them and they will lead them astray. That's, again, very uncomfortable to think that somebody that has led you as an elder of the church in this local place could lead you astray, away from Christ. And that's really kind of serious thing we're talking about, is that not can it happen, when will it happen? And that is a various... Very, very serious thing to consider. So when you think about these false teachers who will come in, I want you to notice some descriptions here in verse 1. They're false teachers there among you, and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're not out there shouting a trumpet. Oftentimes these things are done over dinner. They're done in the parking lots. They're done at coffee houses. They're done over email. It's not usually done right here in the pulpit or at the Lord's table or in Bible classes. It's often done in quiet and darkness so that, as the saying goes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it begins to permeate. And they bring in these things. And when these things come to fruition, if you take into these heresies and this heresies idea of a sect, our same, it's our same word, this different party. If you go along with this party, what you will get is destruction. You will be destroyed from that. And these people that it comes from, they even denied the master who bought them. And when we think about denying someone, we think about Peter, right? I don't know the man. That's not necessarily the way that this is used here. Could be the way it is. The other way that the word denying is used is when you forsake someone. When you had been enslaved to them, you had been in bondage to them. As First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 says, you were bought with not silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb of Christ. They had been bought. These were Christians who now had gone to serve another master. They had now denied. They had now forsaken. And so what do they bring upon themselves? Swift destruction. It comes on them quickly. It's not going to happen uh, in a very slow way. They're bringing on swift or sudden destruction. And many will follow. That's a big, big thing. Many will follow. Usually when there is some kind of split over some false teaching, it is not a small, small thing. It's not a handful of people that leave. Usually it is a considerable amount of people. And it is very dangerous and it is very uh, gut-wrenching. And so many will follow 
their sensuality. Because that's how these people live. They live by what they feel. What they think. And because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. Because these people are claiming to be of Christ, the real way of Christ is spoken against. And it causes all of this. And so verse 3, we learn that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Your own brothers and your own sisters in Christ will take advantage of you by lying about you. And that hurts. That is painful to think that my brother or my sister would do that. But I want you to notice this. Their condemnation. These people who deny, these people who exploit, these people who follow their senses, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. It ain't going to not, something's not going to happen about it. God is not asleep on this. God isn't asleep at the wheel. God knows exactly what is happening, and He knows that they will be destroyed. So He uses an example of that. He says in verse 4 there, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned against them, you and I as human beings, where do we compare against angels? Lower than the angels, Hebrews 2 would say. We don't have the might to kill 185,000 in one night with a sword. Angels did we don't have the power to go through uh, an entire country and kill all of the firstborn males uh, of animals and human beings in one night. Angels did. We don't have the ability to scare donkeys when we pull out a sword. Angels did. Uh, there's, there's a huge difference between us and angels. And he said, if God didn't spare the angels, what do you think he's going to do with them? And if he didn't spare an entire world, verse 8, the world of Noah, a world in which everyone except for those eight souls were evil. Their thought was on evil continually. If he didn't spare them, and if he didn't spare another city of Sodom and Gomorrah where there weren't ten righteous people left, he said, well, yet there's still one guy in that Sodom and Gomorrah. There was still one person uh, in Noah and his family. In verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, and Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. The guy that Lot was is not the guy of his surroundings. He was in absolute pain over what was going on in his city. And even when those cities were completely destroyed as an example of what God would do to the wicked, God still saved that righteous man. And he did that for the purpose there in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And the Lord from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lusts of the defiling flesh, passion, and they despise authority. You see, as much as there is a warning of what is going to happen, it is God's going to take care of this. God knows how to deliver you righteous people. 
their destruction is not far away. It is not asleep. It's not idle. That gets me to the next thing I want to say. I think about these people who have denied their master. And you go down, there. there's a great description about them in this chapter. I'm not going to take the time to it. But one of the things that they do is they promise freedom. But yet they themselves are slaves of corruption. They say everything will be okay. You just do what you want to. You'll be free in Christ. And really what they're saying is, and I believe Percy prayed about this this morning, they're going back to the beggarly elements of the world, those base things. And you've got this going on. I want you now to go down with me in verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I want you to think about what could overcome somebody. Things like bitterness can overcome somebody. Things like anger can overcome somebody. Things like pleasure can overcome somebody. People can overcome people. And the next thing you know, whatever that says to do, or whatever that person says to do, guess what? That's what I do. That's my master. And whatever it is that a person can be overcome by, that's who they're serving. That's who they're enslaved to. And he says, now these people, 21, or verse 20, for if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, I want you to think about that. After they've escaped. We were doing a little, a little mud race that Everton brought up last week. And this passage stood out to me for a couple of reasons. That you got mud all over you. And like, I didn't really want mud all over me, but that's just, that's just the nature of the, of the thing. And they have various obstacles built in there where you go through actual water and you actually get the mud off of it. And then they put you right back through the mud. And it's almost instantaneous. As soon as you come out and you're feeling all good, you're feeling all clean, you get right back dirty again. And he says, you've escaped the defilements of the world. you got blood all over you. you got mud all over you. It feels good to get a shower done. You don't just go right back out and get in the mud again. But he says, after they've escaped these things that are defiling the world, and how did they do that? They did that through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The way they got out of the things that soiled them and defiled them was by knowing Jesus. But now they are again entangled in them and overcome and the last state has become worse than the first. And I began to think about this in in some very painful ways, I guess you might say. You know, things are bad when it happens the first time and you don't know what to expect. But once you've been through that and you've got through it, And you have to relive it again. Sometimes it's harder. You know what is going to happen. Maybe you've been through a difficulty at church. Somebody else is experiencing it for the very first time. 
They've never seen a split before. They've never seen a, a real false teacher in the midst and seen what that does to a group of people. It's bad. And then if you have to go back through it again, it actually feels worse. You can't believe you've got to do this all over again. It's painful. But I don't think that's all he's talking about here. That if you've been cleaned and you got out of there, why would you go back? You once knew that those things were going to bring destruction. You once knew that those things defiled you. You once knew that those things corrupted you and you believed that. Why would you go back to it? And usually the answer is because it feels good. Or it's easier. Or it makes my family feel better. Or you go down the list for whatever it is. But he said, what you find yourself in is you're worse off than you were when you had never been clean. Before you ever became a Christian, because notice as he says in 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I think about hell for those of us that have become Christians and we don't make it. Man, how much worse is that for you and me than it would be for the guy down the street who never had any clue what he was supposed to do? He had never experienced the joys of being free from your sins. And you and I, or our brothers and sisters who had felt that, and who had understood that, are then enslaved for all eternity to that. How much more miserable will that be? And that's what he's saying. And let me give you some bad, some vivid pictures. He says, if you go back to it, you get caught up in it again and again. You're entangled. You're captivated by this. Like the true proverb says that has happened to them, the dog returns to his vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We say that's gross. We say that's disgusting. But yet, for some reason, as individuals, when it comes to going back to living in sin, we say, eh, not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter that much. When he says that, it does. Now, he's got something else he wants you to know. Some people aren't just going to come in and just flat out lie to you. Some people are going to come in, chapter 3, and he says, I'm reminding you of the things that you've heard in verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the apostles. And knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. People aren't just going to lie to you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock at what God has to say. They're going to come in and say, Oh, where's the promise of His coming? I thought Jesus was coming back by now. Jesus must not be coming back. Or Jesus must not going to be do, going to do anything about this. And I want you to notice the mindset of these people. He said, verse, verse uh, 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and the earth was... And the earth, let me try that again. 
For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that means, and by those means, these, the world that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What he says is they deliberately overlook these things. They willingly forget. And I've tried to think of a way I illustrate this. I love sports. You know this. There are many times that I have a game recorded or I have some sporting event recorded on my TV. So that means I do not want to see a score of the event or who won or anything. So what I will do is I will take out my phone, but I want to know what is happening in the, in the rest of sports for a moment. So I will take out my phone, and I will put my hand to where I think the score will be, and I will try to scroll my best. That's deliberately overlooking. It's because the word overlooked there is to hide. You're covering it up. And so what I'm doing is there is a fact that is there that I am trying my best to ignore. And you know what often happens with that little score that I'm trying to hide? It comes somewhere out of nowhere. So the other day I had one and I had done really good. I had hit it on my phone and I said, well, I need to check my email. And wouldn't you believe I had an email about the stupid thing. And it was like, ah, I can't hide from it. And that's the way it is with the truth. You can't hide from the truth. You can try all day long as that picture in Romans 1 is suppressing it as you're holding a ball under water, but it's eventually going to come up. You can't hide it forever. And he says what they're hiding, what they're overlooking, what they don't want to acknowledge is that the world was created. The world was destroyed in water. And notice that the the world was created through water by the Word of God. And then the Lord destroyed it, and He says, now we're waiting on it to be burned up. It's being stored to be burned. And they know that, but they willingly overlook it. And I've often wondered about what kind of things do I willingly overlook? Not sports related, but spiritually speaking. Where I know it, but I try my best not to acknowledge it. I try my best to stay away from a book that might talk about that. And he says, no, it's going to happen. And so he turns to the brethren. And he says to them in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. It's like they're overlooking it, but I don't want you to hide this. Don't you overlook, don't you go into the same mindset as them, and what is, don't, don't forget this. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Don't you think for a second He's not doing something about it. Don't think for a second that He is not going to punish these ungodly, these unwicked people. Don't think about that. His time is not ours. Don't forget it. But then verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness or slackness. Remember this morning we had our, our woman who was crying out for justice over and over and over and over and over? 
God says, I'll give you justice. It just may take a long time. And that's probably what's going on here is it's going to take a while for that to take place. But he says there, don't overlook it. The Lord is patient. Because he doesn't wish that any should perish. That's not his goal. His goal isn't that they be destroyed. His goal is that they all reach repentance. And so he's giving even these wicked brethren a chance to come back to the truth. And he says, don't forget that. Count that as salvation. Like he's giving them another chance at salvation. He's giving them another day to come back. But know for sure that verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Swift destruction will come. You won't know when it's coming, and it will come. But right now, he's being patient, and you better not take advantage of that. Count that patience as an opportunity to repent. And so, it's going to come, and all of these things that you see will be dissolved, he says. And so that's when it gets us to us, very practically speaking, as we close out. As he says, don't forget that the Lord is patient. Don't forget this. I want you to see that since the Lord is going to judge the world, I want you to notice this verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we be? You know what? I forgot that I put that on there twice. I didn't mean to put it on there twice. I meant to put that on the other slide. You know our word here, ought? That's our word from this morning, must. What sort of people must you be? If the world is going to be destroyed and God is going to judge the sinners, what kind of people must you be? Well, surprise, surprise, what the first one is. Lives of holiness. Isn't that something? If you want to survive the destruction of the world... Be holy as I am holy. Be godly people. But more so than that. It's not just about that, but notice verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. I don't know about you, but I'm not normally... The word where waiting is kind of expecting these things. And hastening is like you're wanting it to come. And there's even some statements there. I believe it's the end of first, uh, maybe second Corinthians. Uh, Lord, come quickly. Uh, like, Lord, come do something about this. And he says, that's the kind of person we ought to be. That's the kind of people we must be. Is that we are waiting for God to come. And therefore, what that means about us is that we will be, here verse 14, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent. There's our word attentive. Give effort to being found by Him. When He comes back, remember how we saw? Will He find faith on the earth? When He comes back, in which He will, will He find me without spot and without blemish? Or will I be all muddied up and all defiled up? Or will I have still been without spot or blemish like that lamb that bought me and at peace 
I'm not at war. I'm not out there trying to destroy. But I am at peace with Him. Be diligent to find this. And then that got us to our final verse, verse 17. As we started with, there are going to be people out there who are ignorant, verse 16. They are unstable. They go back and forth. They go with every wind of doctrine. He says, that's not you, verse 17. You, therefore, beloved. How many times he called them beloved in this chapter? I didn't count it up, but I've got at least three that I can think of off the top of my head in this one chapter. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, be on guard that you are not carried away. You don't go with them. You don't get caught up in their error of these people and lose your own stability, your own steadfastness. You be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. You always be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Don't go anywhere. Stay right with Him. And verse 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very thing that got you out of the defiling things of the world are the very things you need to stay in and the very things you need to grow in. And since these things are going to take place, be ready. Not everyone that walks in our midst, not everyone that is ever a part of every church that we are part of, will be true. But what about me? Am I going to be a holy person? A godly person? A person who is diligent to make sure that I'm doing what is right and pleasing? A person that stays in Christ? And a person that grows? We do that when all these things are dissolved. Everything's going to be alright. Heaven will be our home. As he says in chapter 1, there will be an abundant entrance provided into the eternal kingdom. It will be well worth the effort here. Don't overlook it. It can't happen. It's not happening that I'm aware of here. But it's not a matter of if. It is a matter of when. Because it always does. Maybe that prepares us to be better students of the Word of God and better Christians in our daily life. Why don't you come now if you've got any needs this evening?